0: Know Your Food with Warty, episode 99. For links and more, visit the show notes at knowyourfoodpodcast.com slash 99. See you there. Welcome, everyone. I'm just off a quick trip up to Washington to visit my good friends, Ryan and Stephanie Langford. You may know Stephanie from keeperofthehome.org. Um, and Ryan with Ultimate Bundles, one of their other businesses that I um, I do a lot of work with them on Ultimate Bundles. And so I went up there to visit with them, spent a day up in Bellingham, and we had a, it was just gorgeous weather, unseasonably gorgeous, I guess. Uh, it was bright and clear. It wasn't especially warm, but it wasn't too cold either. And we walked along the Bellingham Bay, And we ate at some nice restaurants, and it was a great trip. I did make it by myself, and I was there for a couple of days. Um, So one thing that concerned me, and I'm going to move right into the tip of the week here. One thing that concerned me was, um, as you know, over the past months, I've been um, speaking over and over about the importance of drinking plenty of water and starting that first thing in the day. That should be one of the first things you do every day to replenish yourself from the night. And this was a tip I got from Sean Stevenson, take your inner bath. Um, so I wanted to do this while I was traveling. And, uh, and during the winter, I drink tea. And during the you know, summer and warmer months, I drink my homemade lemonade water. Well, I wanted to be able to have hot water for tea without running it from the tap at the motel or out, you know, restaurants and such. Stopping places to fill my teacup. So what I decided to do was when I left, I actually, you know, had a travel mug with tea from home and I and then I just drank water the rest of the time while I was driving. And then the night I arrived, I went to Fred Meyer. And um, I, I had it in mind, you know, maybe it's time to get a tea kettle, an electric tea kettle. People have those, they travel with them. You can even use it at home, very convenient. Well, I wasn't really happy with the choices. I felt um, they were kind of cheaply constructed and they looked just kind of like they had all these belt or, or one was like $80 and it had all these bells and whistles and I was afraid the handle would break. I don't know. I just, I just didn't trust them. So then I was thinking, you know what, what about a hot plate? I wonder if they have a hot plate here. So I asked somebody for help, and sure enough, they had a basic hot plate, and I got a tea kettle, and I have a picture of it at the show notes for you, knowyourfoodpodcast.com slash 99, to see my little setup I made while I was up in Washington, a hot plate and a tea kettle, and that meant for the duration of my trip, oh, and I purchased some spring water, Um, so for my trip, I was able to heat my own good water and make tea. And to stay hydrated without um, ever once <laughs> having any municipal water. And I'm not even sure what the, what the water is like up there. But um, in general, I'm just really glad about that investment. Uh, coming up here in a few weeks, I'll be taking a trip to a conference. And you know what? I'm going to pack the hot plate. Um, instead of the large kettle that you see pictured there. I'm just going to take a small one that I do have at home. And, and you know, now that I'm home, we're just using the, tettle, the kettle as our tea kettle at home um, because we didn't really have one. We were just heating water up in a pot. So that is the tip of the week for you. If you're able, when you travel, um, to make arrangements to have good, clean water. Um, in the future, I might even, it depends on how far I'm going. If I'm going on a plane, it's not Really possible, but if I'm traveling in a car, I could actually bring a jug of water from our clean well water. I didn't do that this time because I really didn't know what I was going to do until I was on the drive and kind of coming up with a solution for this issue. So that's your tip of the week when you travel: to see about taking a hot plate and a kettle and make your kettle big or small, whatever you can pack. If you're if you're in a suitcase, just take a small one. Um, and I was thinking, oh, that'll take a lot of room. Um, the next time I travel, I will be on a plane, but you know what I'm going to do is I'm just going to stuff socks or little things in the tea kettle and just sort of pack it in there. And so I really don't think it's going to take up a lot of room. And the hot plate itself is, um, just this flat, like flat rectangle thing. That's about three inches high. So I think I can easily fit that in a suitcase. So, um, and here I have a question for you and you can let me know at the show notes, know your slash 99. I'd love to hear what essentials you take with you on trips so that you can keep up your healthy habits. Like, is there something that you always pack, um, that you wouldn't leave home without if you didn't have to, I'd love to hear. Um, as I said, I'm about to, in, in February, I'll be taking another trip. Um, and so I'm already thinking about what I can do, um, you know, tips for traveling health. So know your slash 99 is where you can go to see a picture of my hot plate and kettle that I put together and started using this last week. And also where you can share your own tips and what you do about travel and what things you always take with you or acquire in order to support uh, good health while traveling. In today's episode, I'm covering listener questions, which keep coming in, and I just love it. I love being a help to you, and I think I just find it very convenient to collate questions and then um, get up early before the family and just record all my answers for you. So, the first question is from Maria A. She says, I printed off your spelt sourdough bread recipe that requires three cups of sourdough starter. I'll have a link to this recipe in the show notes for you, everyone. Here's Marie's question. I'm confused why some sourdough recipes only use one fourth of a cup. Others use as little as 50 grams and some use more like mine, three cups. um, While the amount of the flour used is pretty much the same. The amount of sourdough starter seems to be all over the place, depending on whose recipe it is. I trust your opinion and would appreciate you telling me how to know how much starter and why there is such a variance. Okay. Well, Maria, let me just start off with this disclaimer that those of us that come up with recipes, we're doing it from like maybe what grandma has shown us or trial and error in the kitchen. And so you have to realize that probably um, 99% of people, and maybe it's not 99, maybe it's 95, but the point is most people are not going by some formula or some science for, I use this much starter because of this. We, we go by feel of the dough, consistency we want, results, or it's handed down to us, and that's how grandma did it, and we may revise it a little, but we're carrying on a legacy. So you may not find a lot of rhyme and reason in different recipes. Okay. Um, but I can tell you some of the things that play into the experience of coming up with recipes and why, you know, it's possible whether or not the person intended it, why it's possible that it worked out this way. A certain recipe has this much and a certain recipe has that much. And so to kind of explain these factors, I want to talk about three things. The first is just very simple. What's the consistency of the dough? Now your question is talking about sourdough bread. Um, but even in sourdough bread, there are varying consistencies. Um, not like in my recipes, I keep my dough a bit wet because I find that works better with whole grain flours. Now, if you're br- browsing recipes and they're using all-purpose flour, the dough doesn't need to be as wet because because um, that's not such a big a factor. Um, But even if you're talking about non-sourdough, like if you're talking about cookies or muffin batter or pancakes, you can see the consistency of the dough is going to have a huge effect on how much starter you use. Um, The starter is more wet. So the more starter, less flour, the more wet your dough. And so that's going to play into it. Now, the second thing I want to mention is the length of the souring time. Now, in the show notes, I have a link for you. To an article I wrote several years ago, six tips to prevent sour sourdough. There's a surprising tip in there, and you know I just read you that title, and you may be going, "What does that have to do with the amount of starter?" Well, here's the thing. This is a surprising thing, but if you use more starter in a recipe rather than less starter, you end up with less sour sourdough um, because what happens is if, um, if you use more starter, it works more quickly to sour the dough and to prepare it for baking and digestion. And so there's less time that the dough rises, which means it's less time for the dough to become sour. So that could be a reason why there's more, more, um, more starter in a recipe. And that is definitely a factor in my sourdough bread recipe. I use a lot of starter, three cups And, um, you can do a one rise, you can do a two rise, but it's not a long drawn out like 24 hour or 48 hour, uh, bread recipe where you might only find a tiny bit of starter and the the rising time is lengthy and takes days. This is a, um, first rise of a couple hours and a second rise of a couple hours. And that's possible because of three cups of sourdough starter. It's a large starter culture in there to do the work and you end up with a less sour bread, and an eight hour or less, um, process. So that's a factor. Now, the third thing I want to mention is that even though you're reading a recipe and it says three cups of flour or sorry, three cups of starter, five to six cups of flour, which is more or less my recipe. um, the, the recipe itself doesn't give the whole story. It tells what works for that cook. And there are widely varying factors that affect whether or not you're actually going to use that amount of flour with that amount of starter. I mean, don't change the starter in order to um, be very close to achieving what that recipe is having you make, but you are going to have to hold back on the flour to make sure that that flour amount is the right one for you. And the reason is, and I'm sure you know this, but flowers behave differently. You may be switching the grain and it behaves differently. Like spelt behaves differently from wheat. And I cover this at length in, um, the sourdough e-course and the sourdough ebook. Or there are factors like, is the flour fresh ground or has it settled? And with fresh ground flour, it's, um, fluffier. And so more of it weighs the same as, uh, as an amount of flour that settled over time. So, you would actually use more fresh ground flour than you would flour that has been sitting around. The other thing is your geography. If you live in a dry climate, you're going to use far less flour than somebody who lives in a humid climate. And that's because your flour is going in super dry, super starved, and it's going to suck up all that moisture from the starter. Um, and, and, you know, you mentioned my bread recipe. Well, when I first, um, shared that recipe online and with members, we had members in dry climates like Arizona and Idaho who ended up using half as much flour as I do living here in Oregon. Um, and that's because their climate is so dry. They would end up with a dry brick of bread if they used as much flour as I use. So Maria, I hope that was helpful um, for you or anybody else who's wondering about the widely varying amounts of flour. There are the three things to keep in mind, the consistency of the dough, the length of the souring time, and also the desired sourness um, and result. And finally, the amount of flour may not be what the recipe calls for. You may have to make adjustments. Thanks for your questions, Maria. I hope that helps. And if you or anyone has comments about this, please do visit the show notes, knowyourfoodpodcast.com 99. And there will also be a link, as I mentioned, to that Article 6, Tips to Prevent Sour Sourdough, one of which has to do with adjusting your amount of starter for the length of souring time to affect the overall flavor. Okay, questions. Our second question and third question come from Michelle in Indiana. She says, I really appreciate your website, podcast and all the work you're doing. I have a question about kombucha. I fermented it too long and now it tastes like vinegar. Using it like so I'm using it like vinegar. I used it in roasted red pepper hummus and it was delicious. How do I store it? Do I leave it in the pantry like apple cider vinegar or do I refrigerate it? My second question is, which will be the third question of this podcast. I remember you saying you can use kombucha instead of lemon juice or vinegar when soaking grains and beans. Can I also use it in bone broth instead of vinegar? I know the probiotics will be destroyed with the heat, but is it vinegary enough to pull the minerals out of the bone? Okay, great questions, Michelle, and very simple answers for you. Um, Your first question about storing it, you can simply store it in the pantry, just like you do your apple cider vinegar. You don't need to refrigerate it. Your second question about, can you use it for um, broth? Yes, you can use it as that vinegar um, that helps pull the minerals from the bones in broth. You're right, Uh, the probiotics will be destroyed, but see, that's not the point when we're doing bone broth. The point is to facilitate the pulling of the minerals from the bones. And so yes, go ahead and use your vinegary kombucha for that. Thanks for your questions, Michelle. Fourth question, this is Amelia from New Jersey. She says, I'm having a problem with starting a sourdough starter. I tried it once and it worked fine, but it doesn't work with sprouted wheat or einkorn flour. They bubble for a few days, but never grow. After six days, I'm not getting anywhere and I'm throwing it out. What is happening? What am I doing wrong? Okay, Amelia. Well, first of all, um, you started one before, And it worked fine, and now you're not. If it's a different time of year, you may not. We may not be able to say, "Oh, it's the sprouted wheat or einkorn." Like maybe it's a cooler time of year, and it's just harder to get the starter going. That's possible. Um, Another possibility is the sprouted wheat or einkorn flour are aged, and maybe they don't have a lot of active um, organisms on them enough to start a strong culture. So you could look into getting fresher sprouted wheat or fresher einkorn flour that have um, a, more, a more abundant natural yeast on them and bacteria. The other thing is, and this is going back to if it's cooler right now, it could be slower, that maybe six days isn't enough. Maybe you need to give it longer. Normally, when you start a sourdough starter, you will see you know, a lot of activity initially, and then it will slow down. And the, a lot of activity initially is kind of like all those organisms that are there battling it out and really like just, you know, just taking off because of the moisture and the food and the, and the warmth. Um, but there it's going to settle down because there's a battle going on there and some of them are going to die and not, um, survive. And so it's a, um, what do you want to call it? It's more of a long haul to establish a strong colony of organisms. If it's a cooler time of year, or if you're dealing with not as many organisms on the flower, you may need to give it longer than six days and just keep stirring vigorously and feeding and give it some more time. Now, um, I have not started a starter with either sprouted flour or einkorn flour. I've started with wheat. I've started with spelt, um, I know in general, in order to see a lot of activity in a starter, you want to keep it on the thicker side. That's why um, we actually do more flour than water when we're starting a starter. And with maintenance, we tend to feed the same amount, depending on your desired starter uh, consistency. But so if you're keeping your starter fairly thin, maybe more is happening than you think. So do more flour than water and keep it pretty thick. And then you're you more, more easily able to see bubbles rising, doming. So give that a try. Um, other suggestions. Um, let's see. Okay, so you're starting with sprouted wheat or einkorn. Well, you might want to try regular wheat or rye or spelt and then switch to your sprouted flour or your einkorn. Um, my current starter right now started on spelt and at times I've fed it wheat But for the last, um, probably six months, it's been exclusively einkorn and it behaves differently. I mean, it's sort of this, I mean, it's way goopier than spelt ever is, ever was. (laughs) It's definitely not like wheat, um, but it's going fine. I would say in general, it's, um, visibly less active than it ever was with spelt and wheat. Um, so so it's possible that your starter with einkorn or sprouted spelt is really doing fine. It's just that it's less active than if it was rye or regular wheat. So these are a bunch of things to play with. I'm going to try to find a link for you um, to a, an article. And I don't know if it's there anymore. I may have looked for it recently and I couldn't find it. So I don't exactly remember. But there may be an article at Jovial Foods. They're the producers of the einkorn flour we all use. Um, And they may have an article there. I remember one from the past about a starter. So um, I'm going to try to dig that up for you. You can find it at the show notes, knowyourfoodpodcast.com slash 99. And our final question is from Angelica B. She says, Does sourdough make gluten free for gaps? Is it candida safe as well? We also grind our own flour, mainly corn, to avoid the gluten. But if the sourdough will help this issue, we also wonder what type of whole wheat, such as white winter wheat or hard red spring wheat, etc. We are looking into spelt and rye as well, but it seems there are so many different types of wheat. What would be the best all around flour for sourdough? I think this would make a great post going into the different types of wheat. Okay. So let me answer your first main question, Angelica. You're wondering if sourdough makes makes um, gluten-free for gaps. And by that, I think you're asking if you use sourdough when making bread, does it make it gluten-free so it would work for gaps? Okay. Um, number one, sourdough is extremely powerful in processing, preparing grains for nutrition and digestion. There is a um, significant breakdown or like pre-digestion of gluten, but it does not make it gluten-free. So I'm not, I mean, I will go on and answer the rest of your questions, but I think because it doesn't make it gluten-free and it sounds like you need to be gluten-free, that sourdough with, you know, what type of wheat is not going to help you. Instead, you should be looking at gluten-free sourdough. Um, but even that I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to talk about a little bit. So if you do want to look at gluten-free sourdough. Um, and you feel it works with the stage of healing you're on, I'm going to recommend you check out um, my friend Sharon Kane's resources. Um, she has the art of gluten-free sourdough baking. She also has kits and starters to make your own, make your own bread. Um, they're bread kits. They're wonderful. And the information on that is at knowyourfoodpodcast.com slash GFSourdough. Um, I also have a, I have a video on my blog where I made her, one of her bread kits. Um, so I'm going to give you a link to that. So you can check that out at the show notes, know your slash 99. so I, that's, that's the first point is if you, if you feel that you want to pursue sourdough, don't do it with gluten flours because it's not making it gluten-free, do it with gluten-free, gluten-free sourdough. Now you also said, is it candida safe? Um, so you're wondering about gaps in candida. Um, this is the second thing I want to talk about. We've discussed this um, on the blog. In fact, we had a guest, um, a guest blogger, Lydia Shatney, who's a nutritional therapist. She wrote a fantastic article, Are Grains Okay When Healing Your Gut? Now, she's talking about gluten and gluten-free grains. Are they okay when healing your gut? And um, here's what she said. I'm just going to quote her. Carbohydrates are hard to digest, even for those with a healthy gut. So it stands to reason that those with digestive issues have a harder go of it. As a population, we have become more and more intolerant of carbs. Nowadays, even properly prepared grains are difficult for a damaged gut to handle. Ancient soaked or sprouted grains may be tolerable at first, but in time, if the gut is damaged and candida, yeast, or bacteria are present, healing will be prevented and further damage is unavoidable. If your gut is damaged, I recommend you eliminate all grains from your diet for at least three months. Elimination diets are the most straightforward way to pinpoint the foods that affect your health and how they do it. Usually, properly prepared grains can be added back to the diet eventually, but everyone is different and healing times will vary. Some people may find that excluding grains, for the most part, with occasional consumption such as holidays and birthdays, goes a long way to improving digestive issues and overall health. And then her bottom line is, given the evidence, it is a good idea to remove most carbohydrates in order to heal the gut. Ultimately, however, the choice is yours. So pretty much the answer is if you feel you have gut issues, and that's why you're doing gluten avoidance, that all grains are in that same camp, and your healing will be uh, faster if you avoid them. It's up to you, of course. And there is the approach of slow versus fast healing. And so like the GAPS diet or a Candida diet, um, they're fast. They're faster because you're pretty much eliminating most everything that would cause trouble. There are people though, that heal more slowly over time without doing such restrictive diets. And I'm not saying either one is the answer and everybody's different. So that's kind of what you need to explore. Um, and those are just some issues there. there is a, um, there's another blog article by Lee on our site and it's about gluten-free. Is it a fad or is it a necessity? And if you haven't read that already, you may want to explore that um, because she's talking about, um, well, I'm just gonna leave it up to you and she also adds in a discussion of ancient grains at the end and she's got a very balanced approach. So I think that's gonna be very interesting for you. Now you are asking about you know, if you could do wheat, um, what type? Well, you can break wheat down into two types, and I'm not, and that's besides the ancient like einkorn or spelt um, or kamut. So if you're just talking about the wheat we have available today, there's two kinds: there's soft and there's hard. Now the soft is for pastries, so you would, and and it's, it's usually soft. Um, well, it's whole wheat pastry flour, or it's soft white wheat, or soft wheat. So you'd use that for muffins and cookies and, you know, baked goods, not not hearty breads. The hard is for breads. The hard is what has the gluten content that's necessary to provide the structure for bread. And within hard, there's either red or white. And both are fantastic. The white is actually sweeter and fluffier results. The hard is more of that hearty whole wheat. So rather than me telling you what's the good all-purpose, you got to think about, your preferences. And if you're baking um, like a lot of pastries, like if you were going to do sourdough muffins or sourdough pancake, well, not even sour- sourdough muffins, let's say, um, or cookies with sourdough, the whole wheat pastry flour is fantastic. And I want to say spelt acts a lot like whole wheat pastry flour in those types of baked goods. And then if you're doing um, like breads and pizza crust and tortillas, that's where you need Um, structure um, in order for it to roll out and hold or rise and hold and so that's where you'd use one of the hard varieties hard white or hard red and which one of those you choose depends on whether you want it to be a little sweeter lighter and fluffier or you want it to be hardier okay now you asked you know all-purpose there is an all-purpose and that is really spelt spelt I have found acts like whole wheat pastry flour, when you're doing pastries, not exactly, but I mean, it has those light, it it just has an ability to do light baked goods. And it also acts a lot like hard white wheat in like breads and more substantial sourdough breads. Um, So I find spelt to be all purpose. And lately, I do most of my baking with einkorn. And that's for everything. Breads, pizza crusts, chapatis, cookies, zucchini bread, and whatnot. And I find it to be very versatile. It gives a great result on all those things. Okay, so quick review here to make sure I've answered all your questions. Um, I think the first thing you need to consider is whether you really are ready to do sourdough. Like, I mean, you're looking into gaps in candida. So if you're on a gut healing path, uh, it may not be the right time to uh do grains, so definitely check out that article from Lydia Are Grains Okay When Healing Your Gut? And then do your soul searching about whether or not that works into your healing plan. Um, if it does, then you definitely want to look at traditional preparation methods like sourdough. And then um, you might want to do sourdough just gluten-free, following um, Sharon, my friend Sharon Kane's um, gluten-free sourdough resources, which are fantastic. Or if you're ready for doing sourdough with gluten, then of course you can look at spelt, different varieties of wheat, einkorn, and um, and that's the way to go. Um, but your big question: if you need to be gluten free, then you're going to need to stay away from the You're going to need to stay away from the wheat. Um, I don't know. It's a personal thing. I mean, there are true celiacs who can never touch gluten. There are people with gluten sensitivity that if if they use sourdough the the gluten has been sufficiently pre-digested and broken down and handled by the organisms that it doesn't cause them trouble. So that's another thing you need to explore. Boy, Angelica, I feel I've got to the end of this question. I haven't really given you any answers um, because it's such a personal thing. I mean, where are you on this journey? Is it gluten? Cannot have gluten. Is it gluten? Properly prepared will be okay. Is it you're on a gut healing diet and you need to stay away from it for a time? Is it modern wheat that causes you issues? Whereas if you went to Einkorn or Spelt, you'd be better. I can't answer these questions, but I hope I've brought up enough issues that it's been helpful to you to explore further what you should do. Thanks for your question. Thanks for reaching out to me. And um, I just pray that your journey and your decisions would be blessed and you would find the right course of action. Well, I've come to the end, everyone. Thanks for joining me for this episode of Listener Questions. And thank you to Maria, to Michelle, Amelia, and Angelica for submitting the great questions. They're great um, great for these individual ladies, but they're great for our community of traditional cooks. So everyone who's listening here, I hope they've benefited you, answered questions maybe you've had or didn't know you have, or maybe there's somebody you know who is wondering. And so then you can now um, communicate more answers to people that you know who need help, because that's what this is all about. We are helping each other. We're spreading this message of um, good food. God's good foods that are traditionally prepared so that we have better nutrition and digestion and ultimately a better life. Thanks for joining me, everyone. God bless you.